we, we, we should rap about things that we like, like, like food. That's what you bugging as Jeff, you know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Got spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheese maker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. <laughs> Hey Fiona, how you going? Hi, Bezo, I'm great. How well, are you? Welcome to the Cheesy Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I was just looking at your blog and you excel or are interested in an area of food where I am sadly deficient, which is Asian food. So what, what's, uh, what's your favourite? Because this is about 15,000 different places it looks like you've been to in China. <laughs> well, I think Asian food's pretty broad, and I wouldn't yeah. say I have any kind of broad knowledge of Asian food, but I do know a fair bit about Chinese food, uh, where I lived for a while. I think, though, if you understood... Like, if you were proficient in Chinese food, it would be easy to pick up the principles of another Asian food culture wouldn't it yeah i guess like, so yeah. i mean i guess there's a lot of overlap isn't yeah. there and a little bit like once you learn french it's easier to learn spanish yes yeah so i thought i yeah. know either of those languages <laughs> it's really interesting because i have a um i have a chinese friend who is food obsessed and really food literate and widely traveled and speaks english fluently and a bit of french and german but when i asked him what he thought uh you know what he thought about western food in his mind all western food was kind of together the way we sometimes kind of put all asian food together so he he thought there was really no significant difference between french food and italian food or german food and spanish food say the way he saw it and he'd eaten at lots of those restaurants was that it was just this kind of one broad sort of quasi-european cuisine and I said, you know, has he lived here for a long time? Yeah, though? like he lived in Sydney for eight years, yeah. and because uh, I think if you if you lived in Europe, that would be a lot easier to um, to delineate. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like I think there would be quite a few Italian restaurants that would steal stuff from French cuisine or Spanish. You know, they would like Australian. I think one of the beautiful things about new world food cultures and i always relate this back to cheese in america or wine in america where and australia where they just don't have to follow classic rules so if they don't want to make something the way it's always been made in france or china or vietnam or whatever they don't have to do whatever they like with it they can be completely unique about it yeah well inventive you know ben was telling me about some of the spanish asian stuff that they did when they went through a yum cha you know like prosciutto broth and you know crazy sort of mixes of eastern and western cuisine that you know that a, a traditional chinese cook would probably have a heart attack to even think about you know just would blow their mind it's just so far out of their um comfort zone i guess 
It's one great thing about living in Australia, isn't it? That yes, we, yeah. we kind of feel that freedom because we don't have that really no. long tradition of established cuisine here. Like it's building, it's happening, but we, we're kind of writing our own do, cuisine do, history in a way. Yeah, do you, think it's, do you think our cuisine history is that you can do whatever you like? Yeah. Rather than, you know, it's almost like... Um, some anyone who tries to do something sort of ultra traditional is breaking the Australian traditional rules. Yeah, almost in a way. You know, we have so many layers of influence from all over the world, yeah. and we have such great produce that's available to us all yeah. over Australia. So it's kind of like you can do anything with anything, and that will be Australian cuisine. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah. Well, you pretty much, as long as it tastes good. As long as it's fresh and tasty. Yeah. yeah. Though we do have our fair share of crappy deep-fried stuff as well. But <laughs> So you, you did a... Uh, you were talking before the pod about an ill-fated caravan tour. Was it completely completely a disaster, or was there small, small disasters followed by triumphs? Um, so in... 2012, I took my two daughters and my husband and we... How how old were your kids? They were, at the time, they were um, 11 and 8. That's a good age to travel. Yeah, it was a great age to travel, actually. And my husband and we took one of only six camper vans in China. Um, six camper vans? <laughs> six camper vans. like a million cars and they've only got six camper vans. <laughs> yeah, it's like one for every 350 million people wow. or something. Um, Which means there would be no infrastructure. Like, No. One of the things I found really good about New Zealand with camper vanning was it's a country that's set up for camper vanning. So you could go, basically, you could go one night to a non-powered place knowing the next night you could go and charge your stuff up and wash your clothes there was just the whole thing was just so easy yeah so china is not like new zealand (laughs) in that respect (laughs) and there's only there's only three camping grounds in the whole country um so six camper vans three camping grounds and there's this really tiny wave of sort of adventurous travelers who are starting to you know take rvs around the countryside but generally they're retirees and they take short trips yeah and we took six months and we circumnavigated china in a circle around its borders and it was a nutty idea and it seemed like a good idea at the time but um you know there were small disasters that built into bigger disasters that you know culminated in us being arrested at one point and you know there were avalanches and uh floods and mechanical breakdowns and all the usual things but in a really challenging environment could you could you speak chinese before you went yeah not before we went to china but um we'd been living there for a couple of years by the time we went on the trip so i uh decided that my major contribution to the trip other than thinking up the nutty idea was uh was to be the kind of the designated Chinese speaker in the family so I worked pretty hard at that to make sure I knew like the name of all the bits of the engine and (laughs) (laughs) um, you know all the kind of emergency stuff that we needed plus a a reasonable kind of vocabulary of food yeah yeah so do your kids still like Chinese food they do but I say that with a tiny bit of reservation because um they love Western food too. Yeah. And 
Because, like, I know I did something similar when I, we went around Australia for 12 months when I was about the same age in between primary school and high school. And I know for a long time after that, the thought of going for a walk to a lookout just just had no interest at all. <laughs> it was years before, you know, just going for a walk to have a look around. This is like, I've just done too much of that. Yeah. So they kind of groan when I say, let's go out and have some Chinese food. Because they, I think they kind of feel like they've had their lifetimes fill of yeah. Chinese food. But then on the other hand, interestingly, when we came back to live in Australia, like the youngest one, I remember she had this very bad day at school and came home in tears. And when I asked her what was wrong, she said, I, I can't really explain, but could you just make me a bowl of noodles? Yeah. And... That had obviously become different her cultural connections, yeah. Food, yeah, and oh, that really surprised cool. me, yeah. So, so there's little bits built in that they don't even realise. And look, there's some things now that I know I resisted completely when I was that age, which I now um, look back on very differently with the passage of time. Like having that freedom for twelve months, you know, not many people get to do that. No, and people wouldn't. Imagine that you could have six months of complete freedom in a country like China. Like no. I imagine people think that that six would, months was very restrictive. And I would find it a little bit scary knowing that, you know, not... I've always thought of China as some places that are quite happy to have Westerners, you know, kicking about and others that they would prefer that you didn't go to. Is that still the case or not really? Uh, in fact, what we found, and I guess we probably already knew this by the time we set out on the trip, was that people are so interested in you as a foreigner. Yeah. And if you can speak some Chinese, then their interest amplifies. Ah. And our main problem was um, not that people were ever unfriendly to us, that never happened, but that we created too much interest yeah, right. for people. And most evenings when we set up camp, we had somewhere between 60 and 80 visitors what? every night. Wow. You know, who wanted to see... They'd never seen a camper van before. Yeah. They So they wanted to know about us. They wanted to know what I was cooking for dinner. They kept asking, you know, why wasn't I putting ginger and garlic in various dishes that western dishes that i might be cooking and for the kids and did you get um, a lot of dinner invites we got a lot of dinner invites and in fact we probably could have spent six months just going from one village to another on the strength of invitations from this person's (laughs) cousin cousin who lived in the next village and yeah yeah, i mean people were incredibly friendly and gracious and helpful and kind to us everywhere we went and so what did you discover about the food culture once you got out into those areas because like um my i sort of like i've got three kids so i'm pretty poor i can't really travel much at the moment but i don't really want to go to france or italy which is where my food sort of the food i like to cook comes from and just do the tour of restaurants and stuff like that like I want to go somewhere where I can actually learn to cook just what you have on a Friday night or a Wednesday night you know at a normal house sort of thing like that real base food culture yeah yeah because restaurant food culture and what you cook at home it can completely different yeah miles and miles apart yeah and that's kind of what we discovered once we left the big 
city, so once we left Shanghai, uh, everywhere in between that we travelled was on small roads in the countryside, yeah. and that's where we spent 90% of our time. And there's two kinds of cuisine that we came to love. One is called nong jiao cai, which just means farmer food, and it's things that are grown locally, so local specialties or animals that are raised locally. So, so it might lots, be lots of pig. Lots of lots of pork, but also it might be like a farm raised chicken, chicken and yeah. that would be um, that would be what you'd order. Um, and then also another kind of cuisine called Jia Changsa, which just means home style food. And that's what I loved. Just the dishes that everybody ate all every day, all yeah. the time. And we had this kind of arrangement in the end because, of course, I wanted to explore the food everywhere we went and the kids were a, a little bit less enthusiastic about that. And so we came to an agreement that I would cook dinner for them in the camper van, whatever yeah. they wanted, and, you know, based on what was available. available for, <laughs> and for lunch, we would eat out for lunch every day in just a little home-style restaurant. And very often we ended up eating in somebody's home yeah. too. They would invite us home. Um, and that food was really beautiful uh, for lots of reasons. Um, once you get outside the big cities in China, what you experience is this kind of intense locavorism. So we talk a lot about being locavores and eating locally and because that food's tasty and it's in season and it's good. Um but when you go to rural China, nobody has any other choice. There's no, no other food available. There's a big difference between going to a farmer's market and having that. Like I'm, and I know because I'm trying to grow my own fruit trees and I'm not a particularly good gardener and I sort of have a stab at vegetables when I can and I've got a cow and a couple of chickens. But like I still can't provide the fruit for us for a year. And, like, I've started from scratch, whereas, you know, a lot of those families would have had fruit trees that have been in the sort of farm or the back of the house for generations and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And they they often have this wonderful ecosystem, you know, around their house that's... I'm just thinking in particular of a part of China called Guizhou, which is in the southwest. It's very mountainous. It's very wet. Um, for that reason, a lot of people don't like going there because it's difficult to get from A to B because of the mountains and the bad roads. But because of that kind of geographic isolation, everybody who lives there locally has had to be 100% self-sufficient yeah. for their food needs. So there'll be a little wooden house um, made out of the local timber and under the house lives a pig and a few chickens and next to the house are two or three terraced rice paddies sort of carved out of the hill, these tiny little narrow rice paddies. And in the rice paddies grow snails, edible snails and fish uh, that can be harvested. And in the terrace above the house there'll be vegetables and then up in the hills, you know, where it's just all forest, there's lots of wild foods yeah. that are used as well. Um, and it was fascinating just to see how they have this rich, diverse cuisine, really intense, beautiful, hot, sour flavours, um, but they do it all through fermentation and 
drying food and yeah. preserving food and smoking food. They have this incredible smoked bake, bacon is the closest thing uh, that just a sliver of will flavour a vegetable dish. And yeah. yeah, Because they've got to stretch. You, know, you kill a pig, then that's got to go for a long time. You can't just go down the shop and get another pig. That's right. You might only slaughter a pig once a year. Yeah. Um, for a, you know, for the new year, for example. Yeah. Traditionally, they would slaughter the pig then. Um, but the rest of the year, you know, you're going to make your own tofu for protein yeah. um, from the soybeans that you've grown yourself. And you're going to have this diverse range of vegetable tastes that are enhanced by pickling. And yeah. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I find it too, like when you um, when you go to a more seasonal diet, the food tends to taste better for the absence, if that makes sense. Like I sort of refuse to eat asparagus that's not either really local or that I've grown myself. And I've got, it's one of my few successes, I've got a couple of good as- asparagus plots. But, you know, I just love asparagus season and I love mulberry season because it just sort of comes in and you get that, that brief thing where it's really really fresh and really really nice and then it's gone you got to wait 10 more months for it to come back again. yeah me too like i'm totally with you i would rather wait all year for that few weeks of kumquats yeah. or for the best avocados to come in or you yeah. know in chi- most parts of china outside cities like beijing and shanghai you have to do that. There's no other choice. Yeah. Um, so is is Beijing and Shanghai a little bit like New York, set up to eat out all the time? Not many people have kitchens at home. Most people have a kitchen at home, but it's not uh, really what we would consider a kitchen. So it might be a rice cooker and a single burner uh, wok, yep. you know, a wok burner that gets unplugged and put away. Um, so either a gas one or an induction one. A lot of people have induction ones because they're safer. Yeah. Um, but they're tiny, you know, but they'll feed the family plus the grandparents from one rice cooker and one wok. Yeah. It's really... I suppose you're eating a lot of rice-based meals then. Yeah, although they're not... That's an interesting thing to raise. You know, we think about um, rice-based meals a lot when we think of Chinese food, but... Um, in China, in fact, rice comes right at the end of your meal. Oh, right. And whenever we had guests from home come and visit us and go out to eat, they'd all be like, where's the rice? When's the rice coming? Can you ask the waiter again for the rice? But rice is something you eat right at the end of a meal to fill you up if you're not quite full. Yeah. In the countryside, it's different, I guess. Rice is still a staple part of you know a home-cooked meal yeah but certainly in restaurants rice is almost an afterthought it almost kind of means your host didn't order enough food if you need to eat rice i'm not complaining about starch based like i would eat a lot more rice i'm just terrible at cooking it much (laughs) much to a few of my guests disappointment i just it's tricky isn't it i i just don't know i just i think uh like there's so many things i can cook sort of subconsciously like yeah you know you put it on and you, yeah. you, your brain almost has that internal clock that says those potatoes are ready to mash yeah. now and things like that yeah. but right for whatever reason i've never built that into my head with rice yeah um you know i have to set timers on my watch you can't really neglect it can no you, in a way? yeah well that but... doesn't suit my style of cooking 
<laughs> I'm a great one for not measuring. Benign neglect. Um, yeah, d- trying to do it too quickly or forgetting about it or leaving out a key ingredient. Uh, yeah. Just get yourself a rice cooker. I have a very, very small kitchen. So uh, we're talking about this last week with Danielle. Um, you know, talking about thermomixes versus yes. m- mixers. Um, and I make a lot of bread and I'd really like a, a bowl mixer, you know, with a dough hook so I could just mm. whack dough in and sort of let it knead away while I was doing something else. That I'd probably bake bread every day if I had that. But I just don't have the bench space. I can't. Like, I've got a little tiny glass bowl food processor that I can just whack into into a, you know, into a cupboard. But and it, it can't even, you know, like, it's small. It's, it's about the size of that box, but it can't live on the bench. I just don't have enough bench space. So, which is fun when you're cooking for seven, but um, I suppose that's what like 90% of Chinese people do all the time, isn't it? Little tiny amounts of space. And that's right, just carving out a tiny little bit of space or, in fact, cooking outdoors. A lot of, uh, even in the big cities, a lot of cooking happens outdoors. Like um, on balconies and things like that? Uh, yes, or stairwells. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, or in communal spaces, in kind of low-rise apartments, there might be a communal space where people come to cook. Yeah. And because everything's very portable that way, you know, you just bring your wok and your chopping board and your cleaver. There's only one knife, a yeah. cleaver. There's only one pot, a wok. Yeah. Um, and anything that needs to be steamed just goes in a basket above the rice in the rice cooker. Yeah. It's a really, really efficient way of... Of cooking. cooking. Um, I like the communal idea. There's a, a caravan park out at Esk that has built a wood-fired pizza oven and they've built their sort of uh, communal area around this wood-fired pizza oven. So they've got the, the pizza oven and then they've built like sort of outdoor couches and, and yeah. like a big stainless steel kitchen and you just come and make your pizzas and then put them in the pizza oven and, and away you go. I just think it's a great idea to to try and like if people are out on the road and sort of not in their normal social groups, then that's something that can bring them sort of all out of their caravans to have a chat to each other. I think that's such a lovely idea. It's like those. It reminds me of those um, traditional French bakeries where on a Sunday the baker would fire up the ovens and you would bring your pot roast to cook. Ah in the ovens at the bakery um, because most homes didn't have their own oven. Yeah. Um, and that tradition's kind of died out, but a few people are trying to resurrect it around the world. I think it was... I was watching a Jamie Oliver in Morocco and he ha- he went to a place where, like, all the men that would go to work in this particular city and they had this... It's just like a clay pot and they'd go through the markets on their way to work and they'd go to the butcher and he'd throw a handful of diced goat or lamb or beef or whatever they wanted and then he'd go to the spice guy and he'd throw in the spices that they wanted and then the veg guy and they'd put a bit of wine in it and then they'd take it to this place which was essentially like a huge room sized oven and they had their own pot with their name on it and they'd just give it to him and they'd already would have burnt the fires down and the oven would be sort of at a nice temperature and everything would go in in the morning and then at lunchtime you come back and you, oh, there you go, Bill. There's your lunch, and then that's how they that's how they did their lunch every day. That's fantastic. So this there's a whole ecosystem that goes around 
just having your lunch. The community of cooking your lunch and yeah, that's lovely. How amazing one of your lunch tasted. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's a funny kind of modern version of that happening in China because nobody has an oven in their home. Yeah. Ovens are expensive and they're they're not part of how you cook Chinese food generally. Things are not slow cooked or slow roasted. Um, you know, they're cooked quickly in a wok. Yeah. And there's an increase in interest uh, in learning about Western techniques and Western cooking and baking in particular is becoming really popular. But nobody can bake because nobody can cook anything in an oven. So these, uh, these places have started to spring up that have banks of ovens in them and so they have like kitchen la- aids. Like a laundromat. It's like a laundromat, but with banks of ovens. So you can come and then they'll have kind of roving instructors who will help you bake a cake yeah. that you can then cook on site. And you can s- stand and chat to other people while you're waiting for your cake to be finished baking. And yeah. then you get to take it home. So you pay a fee to use this sort of kitchen workshop. Um, it's really fascinating because it's uh, it's mostly young people doing this, yeah. and um, so again, it's that whole concept of coming together in a place where everybody's yeah. cooking, but it's a different kind of cooking. Isn't it funny how I suppose Vietnam's not just down the road, but it's not that far down the road, and yet just the fact that the French were so heavily involved, and they've got a whole food culture that's based around baking, and yet trying to just miss miss baking altogether as a thing yeah in the in the far west of china which is you know from a food point of view is really more part of central asia than part of china, china. Yeah. i'm loath to say that from a political point of view no no but from well, a food, food point of view it's a lot more geographical and yeah than politics isn't yeah it? that's right so the further west you go you do see a lot of bread being baked but they use tonur ovens like a, a tandoor oven oh, yeah. yep. um, and so they're flatbreads that yeah. get cooked on the side of this tonur that's fired by coals and so as you go west there's a lot less rice and there's a lot more bread and is it then also supported by the agriculture is it easier to grow wheat in the west Yes, although a lot of the wheat that they use now comes from other parts of China or it comes from Australia even. Um, You know, it's imported wheat. Um, But I guess those parts of Western China, they were all part of the Silk Road originally. So, you know, they were trade centres. So a lot more outside influences. than. Yeah, that's right. So their cuisine's completely unrecognisable almost to Chinese cuisine. You know, there's lots of... Um, mutton it? and cumin and oh, okay. uh, pomegranates and quince and figs so, and apricots. So and that real Turkish yeah. Mediterranean style starting to sort of flow back into... Yeah, you can really see the influence of the Middle, Middle East there. And yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So then, you, so you went all the way around. Yeah. So what about the north? So the north um, is stunningly beautiful. Inner Mongolia is just one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. These We were lucky to be there in summertime, so it's these rolling <laughs> pastures. I wouldn't have thought that was luck. I'd hope you'd planned yeah, to, be there plan in, that, yeah. to be there in summertime. We went north in the summer and south in the winter. but uh, it, I can imagine a, a Mongolian <laughs> summer is still much, much colder than a, a Queensland winter. 
Yeah, surprisingly, it was quite warm, actually. Okay. During the yeah, day. Yeah, during the day. It was really delightful. And there's lots of these rolling green grasslands just are carpeted with wildflowers and bees everywhere. And there's all of these um, itinerant beekeepers who take their hives and set up uh, somewhere in a field and make wildflower honey and sell that. And then, you know, they move on somewhere else. They're yeah. kind of like gypsy beekeepers. Uh, who had a very interesting life and we met a few of them and uh, I found that really fascinating, the idea of kind of herding your bees around like a herd of sheep and taking them from place to place. Um, Which a lot of beekeepers do everywhere. Yes, yeah. Talk talk to a guy who had a a, um, a truck collapse while he was moving bees. Oh, the back axle broke, yeah. And had to, well, it broke or put the back tire, something. It was more than a flat tire anyway. And yeah, had to get out and well, there was a lot of bees buzzing around. <laughs> and they weren't very happy. I can't imagine being the mechanic that got called to that. No, well, I think that was why he basically knew that it was him or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he was on his own. So. Yeah. Um, but the food in northern China is really limited by the environment. You yeah. know, the winters are long and harsh and very, very cold. gets to minus 40. Oh, um, and so their diet is very much based on foods that can survive that kind of climate. Yeah. So they eat lots of what they call red food, which is meat, uh, mostly uh, from goats and sheep, but also from cattle and yaks. Um and then they eat lots of white food, which is all the food made from the milk yeah, of those animals. Lots of dairy. So they have like a um, a mare's milk liqueur. Oh. Um, so it's a fermented horse's milk that's um, very strongly flavoured. They drink lots of yak milk tea, salted yak milk tea, Jeez. which is quite actually surprisingly tasty and very nutritious. And because with the cold too, they would basically need a very high calorie diet, wouldn't they? Yes, because the cold right. really rips the rips the energy out of you, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So there's very few vegetables in the Inner Mongolian diet. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly root vegetables, and in the summer there's a bit more variety, but... Um, were you craving a salad by the time oh, you got in? in a major way. Like, we were there in summer, and I just I was just dying for some lettuce yeah. or something crispy and green. You know, we'd been eating mutton and potatoes and yak milk tea for... Too long? Like a month. Um, yeah. So it. Um, I think the cuisine of that part of China is really geared towards uh, giving you energy yeah. in the cold Survival months. more than enjoyment. Yeah. yeah. So is it bland or do they... Is it heavily spiced? Or? It's not heavily spiced. It's not spicy. They do eat chilli and yeah. they um, use cumin a little bit. Um and pepper a little bit but it's on the whole it's kind of meat cooked as is boiled or roasted and it's this sort of hard chewy cheese sheep's milk cheese that's um tastes very much of rennet uh and milk so it's um there's not a lot of variety and there's not a lot of technique it's really food for survival food for travel i mean i suppose these people who are descended from 
Genghis Khan. So yeah, um, yeah, portability. It was food that you could take in your saddlebag with you. Yeah. And so then, uh, is there a difference between Central China and Eastern China? Yes, definitely. Um, and what we discovered was that cuisine changes from like one valley to the next. Okay. That this province might have a dish, say for example a, a noodle dish, and you eat it in this town and then 50 kilometres away you eat it in a town you think it's going to be exactly the same, but in fact it's, it's <coughs> like this little mapping of that dish across the province. province. It changes gradually as the crops change and the tastes change so so kind of as a really broad generalization things get spicier uh, from east to west so on the coast there's lots of seafood that's used and they like fresh light natural flavors soy um, some sweetness and then you go further west and the closer you get to Sichuan province obviously the hotter it gets but I was surprised in Sichuan province that there's such a balance of dishes. We see it as this kind of fiery, hot cuisine. But in fact, that's not the point of it at all. The point is to have a really hot dish that's balanced by something that's um, that's cold temperature-wise or that's cooling from a Chinese medicine yeah. point of view. Or um, and, and even when I've, like, I like Sichuan cooking and I've eaten at a few Sichuan restaurants and, yeah, not everything is super blow-your-head-off spicy. Um, there's quite a, you know, unless you order everything with nine chilies next to it, do you know what I mean? But Yeah, and there's that lovely numbing spice too, the mala, which is numbing spice from the Sichuan pepper. Yeah, and it, I've, I've always thought it was the beer that was numbing me, but... <laughs> might have been the food. <laughs> the food, yeah, yeah, that's true. I've, I've found the same thing. We deal with a lot of small goods guys from, and a lot of sort of first and second generation Europeans and we sell a range of premixes for continental sausages and you can never keep them happy because what like we're sort of selling to a generic audience I guess but you know what they call a Frankfurt is different to the 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 um, guy down the road calls a Frankfurt so that's this province calls a Frankfurt or whatever and especially even more so in Eastern Europe than in in um, Germany, you know, the more east you get, the more particular they are about. You give them a mix, and they're like, "Oh, it hasn't got enough of this particular spice. Can you go back and change it?" And I'm like, "Well, no, because I'm selling it to everybody, not just to you." <laughs> so I think so it's yeah, you really get that. It's highly specialized. Yeah, yeah, well, it's and it's highly specialized in the terms of what they remember it as. Mm. So, um, and. Uh, like those guys again coming to Australia you know all those little small goods guys they're not all trying to make the same chorizo or the same salami because they're trying to make it exactly how they remember it from you know from their youth and what they were used to growing up with their taste memory of it yeah yeah you could kind of you could make a taste map of China and it would probably look very similar to Europe you know lots of little borders and regions within regions where um, certain styles or tastes predominated and uh, each you know there's the big eight major cuisines in Chinese food but that doesn't even come close there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of minor cuisines and 
ethnic cuisines, like there's 56 different ethnic groups in China and each one of those groups not only has their own language uh, but they have their own cuisine, cuisine. of course. They'd and be fiercely protective of it, I would imagine. They are and it's really um, beautiful to get to experience that as you travel, particularly around the borders because that's where a lot of China's ethnic minorities live. Yeah. And so, you know, we haven't, we haven't really talked yet about the far south but that uh, borders with Myanmar and with Laos and Vietnam and that uh, that cuisine is completely different again so it's subtropical it's hot but it's also sweet and sour yeah. um, it uses really unusual plants that they don't grow anywhere else in China and you know it's a completely different cuisine again so what about the big cities, Beijing and um, Shanghai? Do they have a bit of everything or do they have their own cuisine that they like to try and keep as the predominant cuisine in their region? They definitely have their own cuisine. Shanghai has its own and Beijing has its own and all the big cities like Xi'an and Guangzhou all have their own particular cuisine. But in the big cities, you can get any anything. food from any country in the world. Oh, okay. It's so just, it's, it's just... not just regional Chinese. You know, there's, in Shanghai, there's thousands of regional Chinese restaurants specialising yeah. in the food of a particular place. But there's also great French restaurants, excellent Spanish restaurants. Oh, nice. Magnificent Italian restaurants. That sounds like a good place to, to live if you're a foodie. <laughs> it was amazing. And you, just... where did you live for two years? So we lived in Shanghai for four years and four years, yeah, oh, wow. um, and travelled a lot through the rest of China. But I never found a city that uh, I loved as much as Shanghai. Yeah. It was just so vibrant and cosmopolitan and unbelievably energetic and exciting. Yeah. And is it still that way? Do you think? Or yeah, absolutely. It's becoming. It's becoming uh, with time more and more sophisticated and there's moves to remove some of the street food culture which disappoints me because I love street food yeah. it's one of the things it's I'm really fun. passionate about and um, I think that's I think that's a retrograde step I know it's in an effort to kind of clean up the street food scene and make it safer and um, more acceptable from a kind of uh, public health and safety point of view but it um, that street food culture is really an integral part of China and people are fighting against the removal of their local street food streets and markets. It's, and yeah. I, I, one of the things that really I find lacks in Brisbane is uh, some sort of highly mobile, not tied to anything food culture and I'm not just talking about cooked food, but fresh food as well. Like all our markets are very set and organized and have rules and, you know, someone is, has to make a profit out of it for it to exist. And there's no rogue asparagus sellers. No, and no. you can't just, you can't just, if you've got a crop of lemons, you can't just rock up to a particular place where you'll know there'll be lots of people and try and sell your lemons. You know, there's the, that just doesn't exist. And maybe that's a good thing, I guess. You know, food safe would probably definitely say it's a good thing, but I just, you know, that melting pot of everything sort of 
happening even little local things like that you know there's a little local tambourine um market and you do get very good fresh food there like from all the little local foods but the cooked food culture is sort of uh there's there's no there's nothing there that sort of sparks you i guess you know there's there's no i don't know like what you need is someone make someone growing snails on the on the mountain and you know having a little snail van and you go there for the snail van uh it's all sort of you know bacon and egg burgers and and thing and and it's got good coffee and i love a good coffee but i i just i don't know whether the 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 culture of our state sort of encourages that to burst out like even if someone had an idea and wanted to do it i just don't think that the, the the ground isn't fertile for it yeah i get the sense that i'm totally with you because i think uh when you rem- well when you when you have a lot of rules and laws about uh all kinds of things not just about street food but it does uh it does remove some of the spontaneity of it it removes some of the thrill of it yeah you know part of the excitement of eating street food is that you just always have that tiny <laughs> doubt in the back of your mind is this going to be the time or you know we live in a society where our governments have decided for us the level of risk that's acceptable mm. And the one thing that living in China taught me was that we actually need to take back ownership of that ourselves, of what risks we're willing to take, I even if it's, it's something so small as street food. I think it's interesting, though, that they're very down on particular types of risk, but there's a McDonald's or a KFC around the corner, which is a highly proven risk <laughs> It's in a some different ways. kind of risk, isn't it? Well, it's, you know, uh, Vanessa came home the other day and sort of said, oh, uh... Now you, you probably know this term better than me. I think it was high energy foods. She said, "What what percentage of high energy foods do you think Australians eat every day?" And I went, I thought 20, 30 percent would be high, and it was. I think it was forty seven and a half percent. Wow! So just under half of all the food that they eat, every Australian eats is essentially junk food, and that's because it's massively available and it's very cheap. It's terrifying, but, but, but that, actually, but that's a, isn't it? And you know, that's as, just as damaging as getting food poisoning because someone's selling you a bit of dodgy street food. Yeah, and look, you can die from food poisoning, so I don't want to make light of it in yeah. any way, but it just kind of speaks to that broader societal um, willingness to let somebody else decide for us what risks we're willing to take. Mm and what we're not and I think uh, food safety is really important but as with everything it's a balance and so what you gain in food safety you might lose in vibrant community culture or community engagement and the one thing that Asia seems to do so well is that community street life like everything happens on the street people eat on the street they meet on the street uh, they wash their hair on the street sometimes, they wash their kids on the street. Yeah. But it just means that you are, there are more opportunities for you to run into your neighbours, yeah. uh, to get to know them as people, and your community is more cohesive as a result. Well, we lived in Red Hill, and admittedly I ran, 
I was running live music venues then. So, you know, I was working late nights and, and probably sleeping in. And we had an older couple live next to us. But I think, I think we're there for seven years. And I don't, don't think, I think I worked out, I didn't know their first names until we were sort of three or four years living there. Now we were in our 20s and they were retired. So there was a definite age gap. But once we got to know them, he was a mad keen gardener and I kept chickens. So, you know, he'd swap me some veggies for eggs and, you know, we talk about growing fruit trees and things like that. So there, but like you said, there just wasn't that many times where we were both outside, um, at the same time to, to sort of force us to interact. Yeah. Um, because you know, the street wasn't amenable to it. There was no real area on both our places to sit out the front and our backyards didn't really have a, like a natural place to talk to. Yeah. I just I just found it really interesting that and then once we once we sort of knew each other we sort of made like even if you just saw him walking up the steps you know you'd yell out and then the interaction happened a lot easier but it was the opportunity to start that interaction that was harder it is much harder isn't it and I have a lot of friends who are architects and we often talk about how in Brisbane we're turning our backs on the street and building big garages to house our cars that kind of barricade our houses from the street mm. so even those little opportunities that we used to have where you were digging something in your front yard and so was your neighbor yeah. out watering their flowers at the same time all of those little opportunities are lost and we live these very insular existences well, uh, where we have to kind of contrive to go to a market to meet friends well that's why i think it like every bit of public space that could be should have an edible in it like why are you planting an ornamental if it's an australian ornamental and it's native and it's it's helping you know it's helping the, the ecosystem great but if it's not why are you planting a european ornamental when you could be planting a lemon tree or, or a mango tree or something because that will draw people out if that tree's full of lemons and you're out there picking a lemon then you might run into your neighbor doing the same thing um in New, uh, in New Zealand and in Tasmania where I've been down, I've seen parks where the, all the trees that they're planting in those parks are fruit trees. And, you know, people will, once they're starting to bear fruit, people will go there because there's free fruit. Like, it, it, it is something that is so simple but gets people out to do things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I've, I have a very small... I live at Red Hill. I have a very small front garden, but... I can tell you where there's some limes you can go and pick. Oh, great. So if you go to Cook Street... Yeah. And in my old front garden is a lime tree. It's like on the footpath. And at least last time I drove past, they weren't picking the limes, or they weren't picking very many of them. It was covered in limes. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to Cook Street to get, so, and to get that, myself some the limes. The house is very, very high up, so if you... you Grab one as you go past, no one would ever know. <laughs> when I was a uni student and living in Paddington, uh, for some reason we had a grapevine growing along our side oh, fence nice. yeah. that didn't really bear any edible grapes, but it was a quite a vigorous vine. It was very neglected. And every year when the new leaves burst out, this little old Greek woman would appear from nowhere with four plastic shopping bags and she would... Pick all the leaves. Pick all the leaves uh, to make dolmatas with. Yeah. And um, that was great. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. But uh, I've tried to make a completely 100% edible front garden 
and it's right on the street and it's lovely when I'm out there and I'm a terrible gardener I'm really just learning but when I'm out there people stop and talk to you and it's just like that having that opportunity to meet the people who live in your neighborhood that you don't otherwise get to meet in woolies or coals yeah you know but if you're in your front garden and they can see you're struggling to grow eggplants or rocket or basil you know they'll stop and have a chat give you tips offer to bring over some cuttings or whatever it is and you just start that lovely little connection well i want someone to eat those limes because i've never got a lime the whole time i live there (laughs) And it's, it's naturally sort of just underneath where the washing machine goes. So I just stick the grey water out the, about the, the window and it would go down onto this lime tree. And, uh, yeah, I drove past. must have been about two years after we moved back. And the bloody thing was three times the size and covered in limes. It was the, it's the best tree I've ever grown. And there's a couple more in the backyard. I'd be interested to see whether they, they're still going as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was better because when we moved there, it was like a... I don't know, three metre by four metre block raised up hard to access of grass. You used to have to wrestle the mower up onto this grass and I think I think we'd been there a year and I said to Vanessa, bugger this. Grow some trees. I'm tearing out all the grass <laughs> and I'm putting something edible in so I don't have to mow this bloody thing. Good so, idea. Yeah. Now you might know the answer to this. I've got a vigorous passion fruit vine along the front fence, which was part of my idea to have something that people could stop and pick. Yeah. Um, but the bugger, although it's, you know, like 20 metres long now and thriving, it hasn't had any flowers. No flowers? No flowers. It's thwarting me. It's, from... And it's not particularly old? No, it's a young, you know, I, yeah, just, okay. I just bought it as a small passion fruit vine. I've from never a had a passion fruit, not flower. Mm. Occasionally, mm. like, that, you know, they sort of, they have a shelf life. They sort of, four or five years and then they stop producing and you plant another one. Um, but I've never had one not flower. Oh, I thought you might have a magic answer, no. like it just mm. needs more eggshells or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Fiona, have you got anything you would like to plug other than your blog? No. No? Where, where's the best place to find your find the blog and how do you pronounce it? Oh, it's Life on Nanchang Lu. Yeah. Um, which was the street that we lived on for a long time in Shanghai, this beautiful old street with big French plane trees that shaded it in the summer. Um, so you can find me there or you can just find me at fionariley.com, which is my website. Fiona-Riley, I think. Fiona-Riley.com. <laughs> and you're on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all yes, those good things. Yes, I'm on Instagram pretty much every day. Yeah. I'm terrible with Facebook. Yeah. And um, I'm on Twitter occasionally. But I like meeting people in person. <laughs> I'm kind of old-fashioned like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, that's what this is good for. Yeah. There's a lot of people I've met that I've talked to on social media and then met here, so... All right, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, see you.